Well, good morning again. Um, there is a reality TV show on NBC called Who Do You Think You Are? And it's a show where celebrities, with the help of investigators and historians and, and different experts, they go back through their family tree and they try to learn, like, who do you think you are? Where did you come from? And it's always an interesting a show because they learn things they didn't previously know. Sometimes the secrets are wonderful, sometimes they're not as wonderful. And in doing so, they feel like by knowing where they came from, it gives them a better sense of who they are and where they're headed. And I think all human beings kind of have this inherent interest in where did I come from? Uh, maybe you've studied your own ancestry and paid money maybe even to try to figure out, you know, how far back can you track your lineage and, and your family? You know, we, we even do this with our pets now, Right. Uh, we got a dog a couple years ago, and, and we wanted to use a mutt, and we rescued him, and so we wanted to know, what do, we, what do we have on our hands here? And so we did the DNA test. So we ordered this kit on Amazon, and we, we did it, and then we mailed it away, and it came back with the results. It's really cool. And um, I'll see if I can remember this right. He's 25% treeing walker coonhound, 20% rat terrier, and 55% stupid. That's what, that's what, we, that's what we, we learned about our dog, c- confirming all of my uh, suspicions. Um, we all want to kind of know where did we come from. And the Gospel of Matthew here, which is the first account of the four Gospels that we have in the New Testament, it's Matthew's attempt to tell the story about Jesus. Um, it begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And I know nobody normally gets very excited about studying the genealogies. These are the, you know, when you're trying to, if you ever tried to read through the entire Bible, these are the list of names, the long list of names. This is when your eyes start to glaze over and you're just like, I hope it gets better after all of this. You can't pronounce any of the names. You don't understand why they're in the Bible. And here's Matthew starting his gospel and he starts with this genealogy of Jesus. Now, Jewish people kept extensive genealogies for a very specific purpose. They needed to know where they came from in order to establish their heritage, their inheritance, their legitimacy, and their rights. They needed to often be able to prove where they came from so that they had certain legitimacies and rights. And that's why often in this time, people would walk around, and instead of just saying their name, instead of just saying, my name is David, they would walk around and say, I'm David, son of, in my case, it would have been Thomas. And because they were establishing who they were by who they came from. And when we look at Jesus' genealogy here in the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 1, and I'm not going to read the whole genealogy to you guys. I like you too much to do that to you. But we're going to look at certain parts of it. There are three surprising combinations that we find in Jesus' genealogy. It actually teaches us a lot about the Christmas story. Three surprising combinations. First, we're going to see that the new and the old are both here. Secondly, the expected and the unexpected. And then lastly, the divine and the human. New and old, unexpected, expected, divine and human. But first, let's look at the new and the old. Matthew chapter 1 begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the Bible, if you're not that familiar with it, is broken into two covenants or two testaments. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books in it, 
and the New Testament has 27 books in it. One of the easiest ways to remember that is 3 times 9 is 27. So 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. And the Old Testament begins with the book called Genesis, and the New Testament begins with the book we're studying this morning called Matthew. And when Matthew starts his book by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it immediately would have made people think of the way that the Old Testament begins because the word genealogy is actually the word Genesis. Genesis. It's the word beginning. And so in a way, the Old Testament, if, you, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, in the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis, the beginning. And here at the start of the New Testament, it's almost like Matthew is saying, in the new beginning. It's a new Genesis. It's a new start. Jesus came to make things new. Jesus didn't come just to make things better, although he does. Jesus didn't come just to make you nicer, although I hope that's happening. Jesus didn't come to make life easier. That's certainly not the case. Jesus came to make things new. And as wonderful as new things are, and as much as we all like new things and we're excited to get new presents in the next couple weeks and new clothes and new toys and new electronics, as much as we like new, new often comes to us at a cost. April of 2021, I should know the exact date, but I don't. April of 2021, the new Chick-fil-A opened right here in Clay. God just shined his favor on us, and this Chick-fil-A opened up just dangerously minutes from my home. And I remember, this church has been here for quite a while, since the late 90s. So I remember when 31, your food options were basically Applebee's, and then if you really wanted to splurge, Ruby Tuesdays at Great Northern Mall. But, you know, for, for, us, uh, for us middle-class folk, it was half-price appetizers at Applebee's after 9 p.m. And then the next, I shouldn't know this, but I love food, I know this. The next restaurant that came was Chili's. And then Chili's came and everybody was like, ah, oh, we got options. And then they started popping up left and right. And eventually Pizzeria Uno's popped up. And I was really excited about that because I was a fan of Pizzeria Uno's. Well, the Chick-fil-A now is where Pizzeria Uno used to be, right? And I remember thinking when they said Chick-fil-A was coming, I was thinking to myself, this is going to be the weirdest looking Chick-fil-A I've ever seen. I just kind of thought they're just going to renovate. It'll be a lot cheaper, right? Renovate and remodel the, the no, what did they do? They leveled it. They knocked it down, and they built from scratch. They built something new. And to get something new the way you want it, sometimes you have to destroy things that are old. You have to level them. You have to knock them over. So when Jesus comes as the new beginning, he's tearing some things down. He's leveling some things. He's flattening some things. And the truth is, he does the same thing in our lives. How many of you have learned that in the journey of being made new by Jesus, there's some old things in you that have had to die? that have had to be knocked over, that have had to be demolished or destroyed. And this is what Jesus does. He comes to make everything new. So right here at the beginning of his genealogy, it's a new beginning because Jesus is a God who came to earth to make things new. But it, we also see in this genealogy the old. So it's not just the new, it's also the old. Because in the verse that we read, it said that this is the book of the genealogy or the new beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you know the Bible, those are very familiar names from the Old Testament. But these are old guys. They're long gone. They're a long time ago. Abraham, the, considered in many ways the father of the Jewish people, was the first man chosen by God through whom he said he would bless the entire world. 
David came years later, and David, although he was not the first man that God chose, David was the first king that God chose. Now, there was a king before David. His name was Saul, but Saul was chosen by the Israelites. David was chosen by God. And so what you have here is the first man chosen, and what Matthew is doing is really important. He is linking right from the start, he is linking Jesus' lineage to Abraham, establishing his ethnic purity, that he is a Jew of Jews, that he, is a, that he came through the line of Jewish people, that he comes from Abraham, as all Jewish people do. But he's also linking him to David, because David was a king. And kings descend from kings. And Jesus is the promised king. In 2 Samuel 7.16, God makes a covenant with King David. And this is what the covenant sounds like. He says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. So God says to David, a descendant of yours will always sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. But fast forward to the time in which Jesus is born, and the Jewish people have no king of their own. They have to bow their knee to Caesar. They're under Roman oppression, and, and, and they've been captured, and they've been taken, and they're at risk of losing their identity and their faith. And in the midst of all of this, the promise is true that there is someone who's going to sit on the throne of David forever, and this king is King Jesus. So when Matthew says he's the son of David, he's reminding us of not just Jesus' ethnic descent from David and Abraham, but Jesus' legal claim to the throne of David. And so there's a connection right in the verse 1 between the new that Jesus comes to bring and the old. That Jesus didn't come out of nowhere, so to speak, of, but he has been prophesied of and spoken of and expected and anticipated. And he came through Abraham and he came through David and here is Jesus. And as important as David and Abraham are, and as wonderful as they are, neither one of them is the most important person in this genealogy. Matthew does something that would have surprised the people when they first read this. When people listed genealogies, whoever the genealogy belonged to, so in this case, Jesus, the name would only show up once, and it would show up at the end. So it would trace back as far as it could to Abraham. It would go through, go through, and then it would end with Jesus. But what, Abraham, or what Matthew does here is kind of interesting. He starts and ends this genealogy with Jesus. And that's not normal. This is not how you would do it because in the Jewish tradition, it was your ancestors that gave you value and worth. It was your ancestors that shaped your story. You were who you were and you had the standing in society that you had because of who you came from. Never the other way around. You could not give your ancestors value and worth. You got your value and worth and standing from them. But Jesus is mentioned first because Jesus is different. His ancestors depended on him for their significance, for their value, and for their worth. Even the best of his ancestors, even Abraham, even David, it's their connection to Jesus that gives them importance and significance and value and worth and not the other way around. In other words, these people matter because of who their story is connected to. Jesus gives it to them. They don't give it to him. And this is true not just for them, but it's true for you and me. Our stories must begin and end with Jesus. And it's not us who give value to Jesus. It's Jesus who gives value to us. We are who we are because Jesus is who he is. So we see the new and we see the old. Second thing that we see is the expected and the unexpected. Let me begin to read this. I'm just going to read some of the names here, verses 2 through 6. It starts with Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah 
and his brothers. That was the 12 tribes that included Joseph, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. We see the expected and the unexpected. There are some names that you would expect to see, important names, historic names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I mean, these are the fathers, these are the patriarchs, these are the fathers of the faith. And then David and Solomon, of course they're included because they're kings. It's the kingly lineage. These are the names that you would expect to see. But there are some names in there that were very, very unexpected. There is the inclusion of five women in Jesus' genealogy. And it was very unusual at this time to do that, very unexpected, because descent was always traced through the men as the head of the family. This was a very patriarchal society. And so it was not normative at all for a woman's name to be listed in a Jewish genealogy. In fact, in the Old Testament, the only time that you see women's names included, of course, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying this is the way that it was. The only time that you see women's names included in genealogy was when the name of the woman strengthened in some way the purity of the line. So if the woman's name and who she was somehow brought more validity and purity to the lineage, then they would put her name in. But otherwise, you would never find the names of women in Jewish genealogy. And yet, in this short list of names, Matthew, who's writing to Jewish people, includes the names of five women. Well, surely they must have done something wonderful, heroic. Surely they somehow contribute to the purity of Jesus' lineage. And that's not true at all. Let's look at these names. The first name that we saw was Tamar. Now, this is one of those stories in the Old Testament that you read it and you're like, what? (laughs) Whoa. Uh, this is a story that does not really give a, shine a bright light on human nature. But here's the story of Tamar. Tamar, Jewish woman, marries a man named Ur, E-R, Ur, and he is an evil man. He's a wicked man, and so God makes sure that he does not live a long life. He passes away before he can give to Tamar a son. And again, in this patriarch, patriarchal society, to be widowed and childless was about the most dangerous place you could be in society. You were, you were going to be exploited and exposed and open to all sorts of things because you had no close male relative to provide for you or to speak up for you or to protect you in any way. It's just the way that it was back then. So to be widowed and childless was terrible. So in God's wisdom, when he gave the Jewish people the civil law, he came up with a solution. What happens if a woman is whittled and childless? What are her options? And what the civil law that the Israelites followed said is that the brother of the man who had passed away should take that woman in as, one, as his wife and make sure that she does have children and that she has a son so that she has a hope in the future. Again, I know that's strange to us thousands of years later, but that was for their good back then. So that's what happens. The father gives Tamar to this other son whose name is Onan and says, you need to give her a son so that she has a male uh, relative that is close to her. But he does things in such a way to ensure that she cannot get pregnant. God is not pleased with that either, and Onan also passes away. So now she's been widowed twice and still has no son. Now there is one more son, but the father's like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. 
I've already lost two sons to you. I'm not going to lose a third. So even though he promises her, when he grows up, he'll, he'll fulfill his, his brother's responsibilities, she knows it's not going to happen. And so then through some deceit, she actually gets pregnant by who would have been her father-in-law. I know, not the greatest story. Some of you are like, oh, i got to read my Bible more. This is interesting stuff. Uh, and, and she has this son, and her son is in the genealogy of Jesus. And so is she. It's a mess of a story. And here's her name. The next woman is Rahab. Rahab, we learn about in the story of Joshua fighting against Jericho. Remember that story where there's the walls of Jericho and the, and the Israelites march around it? And Rahab is a, a, a heathen prostitute who lives inside Jericho who opens up her space to protect some spies, some, Jew, some Jewish spies, and then she's saved when they come and attack Jericho. And, and here she is, a heathen prostitute living in a city destined to be destroyed, and yet she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Then we skip on to Ruth. Now, Ruth is a Moabite, which means she's not a Jew. We studied Ruth earlier this year as a church. She also was widowed. She also was childless for a while. And she was a foreigner, a Moabite, trying to live in Jerusalem. And here Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then the, the, the last name that we read, they don't even include her name. They call her the wife of Uriah. But her name is Bathsheba. And this is a woman who suffered at the hand of another person. King David arranged for her to be taken from her husband to him for his own pleasure and then arranged for her husband to be killed to cover up his sin. These are not the Hall of Fame stories of the Old Testament. These are some of the most shame-filled, dark, broken, messed-up stories you can find in the Bible. And yet Matthew references all four of them. Now, the fifth woman's name we'll see eventually is Mary. Well, they go, finally, somebody great. Well, Mary's wonderful. But you also got to remember, Mary, in the eyes of the village that she lived in, was a teenager pregnant out of wedlock, which in that society at that time, in that culture, was a really big deal. And so you have five women. None of them exactly represent the best of us. And yet they're here in the genealogy. And and what what we learn by these names, by the way, is that each of these women kind of represent Something about us. Tamar represents those who feel like they've maybe been forgotten, that life has passed them by, that the best is behind them, and that the only thing they can do is try and cheat and deceive their way forward in life. Rahab represents those who feel like our mistakes define us, and the worst of us will always be with us, and there's no future, and there's no hope because of what we've done. We're ruined. uh, We're spent. Ruth maybe represents those who feel like they're unseen, and even their best choices go unseen and unrewarded. Bathsheba represents a victim, someone who's defined by someone else's choice, someone else's action towards them, and Mary represents someone who's relatively unimportant, young a nobody who lives in a nowhere place. And yet every single one of these women are included in the genealogy of Jesus, the most important genealogy of all time. Their names are here. The lineage of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew is comprised of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, Jews, and Gentiles. Why? To remind us that Jesus is Savior of all. Jesus is Savior of all. Listen, Matthew's genealogy doesn't just show us who Jesus came from. It shows us who Jesus came for. Jesus came for Tamar's. Jesus came for Rahab's. Jesus came for Ruth's. Jesus came for Bathsheba's. And if that's true, then guess what? Here's the good news. Jesus came for you. He came for you.
The gospel tells us that no one is beyond God's reach and that God delights to use the broken things of our world and the broken things of our life to tell his story. Years ago, I was helping a friend babysit in Skinny Atlas, this beautiful home, four young children, and uh, I remember walking around this enormous house, and I went into one of the many bathrooms that they had, and over the sink was this mirror that was just breathtaking. It was beautiful. Around the outside of the glass was a mosaic of different colors and shapes and textures, and I asked my friend, I said, tell me about that mirror. It's incredible. It's clearly like one of a kind. What's the story behind? And she said to me, well, the mom, as her kids have been growing up, the kids, because they're clumsy and because they're kids, they break stuff, right? They knock over vases and they break mugs and they drop glasses and picture frames and stuff. And she said to me, whenever the kids would break something, the mom would take all the broken pieces and set it aside. And then the next time she would do the same. And the next time she would do the same until eventually she had a large collection of broken pieces that she then, as a piece of art, made into the frame around this beautiful mirror and hangs it in the bathroom that the kids use the most just to remind them of something important. I thought about what it would be like in that moment when that kid breaks something again and the kid feels embarrassed and shamed and, oh, no, I'm in trouble and I've messed up and I've done it again. And I picture the mom saying, like, did you break something? And the kid's like, yes, hoping they're not going to be in trouble. Instead of the anger and the rage and the frustration, she's excited. (laughs) She runs over and gets down on the ground and begins to look through the different pieces of the broken mug. And then she finds just the perfect one that she's been waiting for. And she takes it in her hand and she picks it up and she looks at her child and she says, I can use this. I can use this. I think God comes into our lives, you know, in our moments of shame and brokenness and sin and separation, and we're like the kid, pretty sure God's going to show up pretty angry, pretty frustrated, really disappointed. We're hoping he doesn't notice, he doesn't see, we're trying to, and he comes right into our mess, and he finds that one piece of brokenness in us, and he holds it up, and he looks at us and says, I can use this, I can use this. And that's what this genealogy reminds me of, that God takes the most shameful, broken things in this world and through Tamar's and Rahab's and Bathsheba's and Ruth's and Mary's comes Jesus, the perfect one, our Savior, the expected and the unexpected. The last thing that we see in Jesus' genealogy, the last combination is the divine and the human. I'm gonna ask Pastor Antonia and Lauren to join me up here. As we finish, let's skip to the last verse of the genealogy. Verse 16 reads this way. Jacob, the father of Joseph, we're going to study Joseph a little bit next Sunday. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. In this genealogy, up until this point, it's a bunch of humans, Humans who do human things and make human mistakes. But all of a sudden it comes to Jesus and the last word of his genealogy is the word Christ. And what does Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. Christ means Messiah. And the Messiah cannot just be a human. If someone was gonna come to save God's people, it needed to be God himself. And so in this word Christ, we see the, the first hint of the divinity of Jesus. That he's not just a man, 
He was God born as a man so that the divine might come to earth, walk amongst us, live amongst us, rescue us, and save us. So Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the divine. But I also notice there's the human here because it's Jesus born of Joseph and Mary. Joseph's a human and Mary's a human and Jesus has a real name and he's a human. And what am, Why am I saying all this? Because the divine do not have human genealogies. Zeus doesn't have a human genealogy. Apollos, Aphrodite, Hades, Hermes, Greek gods, Roman gods, Eastern gods, they don't have a list like this. Why? Because gods don't belong in a list like this. A god should never be in a list like this because a god should never submit him or herself to a human genealogy. But Jesus Christ is the one God who came from heaven to earth and Jesus has a genealogy. He had a real mom. He had a real dad. He was a real person. He became man. John 1.14 says it this way, that the word became flesh, that Jesus wrapped himself in flesh, that Jesus wrapped himself in the human experience, that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer, that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, that Jesus knows what it's like to, to struggle, Jesus knows what it's like to be uh, abandoned, Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed, Jesus knows what it's like to be forgotten, Jesus knows what it's like to be a Tamar, to be a Rahab, to be a Ruth, to be a Bathsheba, to be a Mary. Jesus knows why, because Jesus wrapped himself in a genealogy and he humbled himself and allowed his name to be attached to a human genealogy. So the Gospel of Matthew starts with what looks like a boring list of names, but there's so much here. It's so rich. He begins his account with the most remarkable, history-changing, life-changing news, and hidden in this list of names at the end is this breathtaking phrase, three words, Jesus was born. No God should be born. No God should come to us the way Jesus did. But that's the point. Jesus is like no other God. There is no God like him. There's no greater miracle of grace than the baby in the manger that we remember this season, that the creator would become part of creation, that the one who made mankind, humankind in his image, now becomes a human. That Jesus would become like us so that we could be like him. It's the mystery, the divine and the human. In one man, Jesus, the God-man, Jesus was born, and it changes everything. Jesus was born so things can be made new. Jesus was born so even if you feel like you don't belong in that list, you're there. Listen, it's easy to look at the list of five names that I read, those ladies' names, and go, oh, yeah, that's, a really, that's cool. That's good for them, and that's good for people like them. And then to realize, no, no, no. That's good for you. <laughs> That's good for me. We don't, our names do not belong in a list like this. And yet Jesus gives us himself and his inheritance and brings us into his family because he was willing to be born. Let's pray together this morning.